Well, good evening, everyone, and thank you again for joining us. Welcome back to the Healing of America series. I'm Tyler Ota, the Virginia State Liaison for Moms for America, where we believe that liberty begins at home, where we empower moms and we raise the next generation of patriots. Um, so I am going to be uh, teaching you tonight the next in our series. Last week we did um, seminar one and the, the study course one, and we talked about um, the, the uh the founding of our of our country and and really the the beginnings of that right all of the world history uh items that came before even we got to the founding so we really were kind of setting it up uh for this week and the week to come and to be honest with you these next two weeks are really some of my favorite weeks um to learn and to study and so I'm really excited to share with you um, these next two weeks, just because the the content is so inspiring and just really, I mean, just sings to my patriotic little heart and I hope it will to yours as well. Um, so this week we're studying uh, the second of the four um, lessons for this first seminar. And the, the title of it is called Raised Up for the Very Purpose. And I think we have a slide for that to show you kind of where we are in the study. And there we go, raised up for the very purpose. Yes, God's hand in the building of America. I was having a hard time there trying to, um, <laughs> trying to find the name from last month. I'm consumed with studying this week's so that I uh, forgot it. Um, I am having a little view problem here. Give me one second. Uh, I need to just minimize, there we go. I had maximized the, the wrong screen. Thank you all for being with us again this week. And I'm gonna go ahead and jump in now with the, the uh, lesson. We start with uh, England and her American colonies and how they split. And uh, so, during this time in England around 1700, Parliament realizes that all of the immediate heirs to the English throne are sympathetic to the King of France. And so therefore they make this settlement act and they order that nobody can become a ruler of England in the future unless they descend through the granddaughter of James I named Sophia. And she had married into Germany. So there was these German kings in England for quite some time. So when George III comes along, he's the grandson of George II. And he was the first king of that century who wasn't German. He was born in England, educated in England, and spoke English beautifully and really considered himself this, this patriot king. And he was very popular with the English people. However, his um, policies really started to antagonize the American colonists. So in the early 1760s, he orders this uh, strict enforcement of the Navigation Acts, which I think we have a slide for that as well. Um, and it results in extensive smuggling, both in England and America. And so to suppress that, he authorizes this ad admiralty court, uh, which has no juries. And the admiralty courts issue the writs of assistance, which basically allows officers to go into any home in the colonies and search any business for smuggled goods. So I think we have a slide for that as well. 
Um, and then following that, in 1763, he actually forbade the colonists to cross into the mountains and settle in the Ohio Valley. Well, some people had already become established in that area. And so the colonists actually defied this act and resentment grew in the colonies for the king. Um, and then in 1765, the king and his agents in parliament passed the Stamp Act. And I believe we have a slide for that as well. And the colonists declared this to be taxation without representation, which I'm sure that you've heard before. Um, so it was uh, during this um, parliamentary debate on the repeal of the Stamp Act that Charles Townsend asked, will these Americans, children planted by our care, nourished up by our indulgence, will they grudge to contribute their might? And whereupon Isaac Barr replies, they planted by your care. No, your oppressions planted them in America. They fled from your neglect of them. As soon as you began to care about them, that care was exercised in sending persons to rule over them. They protected by your arms. They have nobly taken up arms in your defense. So this was sort of the sentiment that's starting to build in the colonies where, you know, this, this friction has begun. And although the Stamp Act was repealed in 1766, the Townsend Acts were passed in 16, uh, 1767, and regiments of British troops began arriving in America to enforce the collection of the taxes under this new act. The king even had a quartering act, which I believe is the next slide. And this meant that the colonies had to provide room and board in colonist homes to the soldiers free of charge. So imagine just your military is just moving in with you and your children into your home and how egregious that would be to you, <laughs> how, how uncomfortable that would be. And, and you can't get any money for it. So you're just putting them up and paying for it. Um, so this was, this was you know the situation as it stood. So then there are some acts that finally lead to the eruption of violence in America. And it starts with the story of Christopher Cedar. And this actually isn't in your book, but Christopher Cedar was an 11 year old boy. And there was a, a small mob outside of a loyalist um, shop. And one of the, uh, I think it was a customs agent uh, for the British put his uh, rifle outside of his window and fired what was supposed to be a warning shot and actually ended up killing this 11 year old boy. Well, Samuel Adams, of course, pounces on the opportunity and plans a funeral in Boston. They um, had 2000 people in attendance. And of course the, the rage and fury I'm sure was un unbelievable, but um, following that was on Feb February 22nd of 1770. So in just two weeks, after that, on March 5th, my birthday, actually, um, so it's always easy for me to remember, the Boston Massacre occurred. And that was when uh, 300 uh, boys and men were kind of provoking this group of nine British soldiers. And the, the soldiers actually shot uh, 11 people total and killed five. Um, so I think we have with this uh, picture here up in the right corner, you'll see that red circle. This was a uh, an engraving that was actually printed and sold by Paul Revere. Up in that corner, it said, you see where it says Butcher's Hall. They had renamed that for this painting. It's actually the Customs House, but they, it, you know, 
to to show the meaning of what they felt. They renamed it Butcher's Hall. And there's that rifle sticking out of the window in the background, if you can see it. So <clears throat> this was a, a popular print here of, of the massacre itself. And then came George's the third's uh, scheme to trick Americans into paying a tax on tea. And so Americans were buying Dutch tea and that was being smuggled in and sold cheaper. But the king was trying to undersell the Dutch by limiting English brokers, but leaving the tax attached. And he didn't think Americans would mind as long as it was cheaper. But here's the surprise to him. All of the tea ships were forced to return with their cargo to England um, or the shipments were unloaded and then stored under quarantine and not sold or taxed. But the exception was Boston. The people refused to let the tea be unloaded and the governor refused to let the ships return until they were unloaded. Um, and it was actually almost to the 20 day point. Uh, and, and they said Samuel Adams saw through the scheme and he pleads with the governor to send the ships back before it was a, a direct confrontation with the people. Um, but sure enough, on the night of the 19th day, the Sons of Liberty boarded the boats and threw all of the tea into the harbor, 342 chests. And as we know, it's uh, it's been called the destruction of the tea and now the Boston Tea Party. So George III swiftly and vengefully acts and he closes the Boston Harbor. He places the city under martial law. He puts General Thomas Gage in charge of British troops in America. Um, and as the new military governor of Massachusetts, he suspends the charter of Massachusetts. He dissolves the people's elected assemblies. He suspends all the town meetings. And he also threatens to bring serious offenders to England for trial, which AKA probably means they're going to be killed. So these measures are known as the intolerable acts. And the first Continental Congress then convenes during September and October of 1774 to sort of uh, try to forestall this outbreak of war. But nevertheless, the colonists are now determined to start standing up for their rights. So in a sense, you could say that the uh, birth of the United States of America was actually occurred in the Pennsylvania State House. So this is a, a map of Boston in 1722. Um, this would have been how, how the city looked at the time that um, Samuel Adams was actually born. We're gonna talk about him in one second. Um, there, it, there the Declaration of Independence was debated and adopted and that's why it's now called Independence Hall. But it's also where the Constitution of the United States was hammered out and finally signed on September 17th of 1787. Through who, whose eyes would you like to have seen the great historic events which brought our nation into being? For most people, they would say maybe Washington or Jefferson or Madison, but the man who's first perceived the necessity of America to break free from England was Samuel Adams. And he was one of America's greatest freedom fighters, but not maybe as popular or well-known as some of the others, um, but I'd love to tell you some more about him. So he actually was born in 1722 in Boston, Massachusetts. That made him 10 years older than George Washington and 16 years younger than Benjamin Franklin. He was second cousin to John Adams and uh, his father was a deacon and a malter. So often they say he's he was a brewer. He wasn't a brewer, he was a malter, which means that he sells the malt to the breweries. His father made what was called a land bank and they printed their own currency and then Britain was very unhappy about that and basically shut it down. So from a young age, Samuel Adams was very wary of, of the whole 
British um, concept of, of government, governing them. Um, and he went to Harvard at age 14, and then he gets his master's. He finishes up at 21. He did his thesis on whether it would be lawful to resist the Supreme Magistrate if the Commonwealth cannot otherwise be preserved. So you can see that he was already thinking about uh, these freedom aspects from even from college. Um, he gives up on being a minister, a lawyer, an accountant. He had a newspaper that he also gave up and also his father's malting business, all for, for the political um, sphere of Boston. So he's very, very uh, on the front of everything that's happening in Boston. And he knows basically all of the residents of Boston by name and occupation and political affiliation. He's part of the Loyal Nine, which eventually turns into the Sons of Liberty. And they spend their time um, communicating through the Committee of Correspondence, which he was very influential in. So he's kind of like the social media of that time where he's sending these messages up and down the East Coast to get the colonies to unite around the concept of becoming free and potentially going to war. He was the first American to have a bounty on his head. He married two Elizabeths. The first one he had six children with, only two survived. And then he was single for about seven years and he marries Elizabeth Wells, um, who he called Betsy. And she raises Samuel Jr. and Hannah as her own. And she basically kind of bolsters that home all through the Revolutionary War because he was very much gone for most of that time. And then he's also given a slave as a wedding present. But because he was so against slavery, he said, absolutely not. Um, but I will let... I will let this slave stay with us. So they had a slave named Surrey who becomes basically part of their family and their household and stays with them until the end. They also, this is hilarious, he had a, a family dog, apparently it was a Newfoundland, who was very patriotic too. So like the perfect dog for Samuel Adams. He would attack British soldiers and apparently he had scars and like all these marks on him from where the British soldiers would like hit him back and stuff, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, he ends up becoming a signer of the Declaration of Independence, as you probably know. He was also appointed to the Board of War um, during the American Revolution. And then later he still remains active in local politics and is the governor of Massachusetts for a short time. So I um, really just admire Samuel Adams and I did a lot of that study on my own because I just wanted to know more about his life um, and, and his story. And he's just such a great character and such a wonderful patriot. And without him, who knows where we would have been, but. You have to remember too that he he came along during the time of um, you know the Great Awakening, so he was very influenced by George Whitfield. And then during college, he was studying law, so John Locke and others who who kind of brought these principles forth. But just to show that he really was raised in that perfect time, raised up in that purpose perfect time for this purpose. So now there's changes in loyalty. So during about 12 months, there's a series of incidents that changes the colonists from loyal England, Englishmen to loyal Americans who are now demanding independence from England. And so here's kind of what brings about the change. During the fifth, first 15 years of King George's reign, people are trying to protest and petition. But from 1775 to 1776, events occurred which destroyed any feeling of loyalty or affection for the king and that would be and i believe we have a slide for this next one um that would be 95 americans at lexington and concord 
They were actually at Lexington and Concord and uh, because Samuel Adams and John Hancock had gone to Jonas Clark's house and the British were actually coming for him. Um, he was, they were warned and they escaped, but that's kind of how all this ended up coalescing right there. And they were also moving their ammunition as well. The killing or wounding of approximately 500 Americans at the Battle of Bunker Hill and the British themselves lost about a thousand people there. So they realized, wow, we're, we are dealing with a serious, um, a serious threat here. These people are serious about wanting freedom. So when some of the more conservative members of the Congress, such as Don, John Dickinson, sent an olive branch petition in July of 1775 to King George, he re refused to even read it. And he said the petition had come from traitors and rebels. So then July 3rd of 1775, just one year before our declaration is signed, Washington takes over at the siege of Boston. And I believe that's the next slide. And... Uh, and then in August of 1775, King George issues this fatal proclamation declaring that a general rebellion exists in the colonies and that that would be need to be subdued by utmost endeavors. He says that the leaders are supposed to be arrested as traitors and brought to justice, which meant execution. And then he even issues a harsher proclamation on December 22nd of 1775, which virtually abolishes the colonist status as British subjects. And he says that the Americans were to be treated as enemies, that all the trade with the colonies was outlawed, ships could be seized, cargoes confiscated, crews would be drafted into the British Navy. And these colonists were not going to tolerate these abuses much longer. So usually we think of 1776 as one of these most glorious years in American history. Of course I do. Um, just because we know what happened and we think of the highlights for us as free Americans now. But at the time, it didn't seem very glorious to these founding fathers. Some of them considered it the worst years in their life. And I mean, that's for good reason. The, the Americans had lost a campaign in Canada. Um, during the siege of Boston, more than 4,000 Washington's uh, badly needed troops left him. Of those who were left, many were sick. Enlistments were only for six months. And so as soon as their time was up, few of the soldiers re-enlisted and morale was, of course, low. So there ended up being, you know, Americans were fighting amongst themselves and it was just not a good time. Um, the colonists were basically disowned again by George III. And uh, many leaders realized that the circumstances might force them into a state of separate independence from Britain without a single colony knowing how to govern itself or have any government in place. And so Virginia, my state, the largest state in the population, uh, largest state in population of colonies, was expected to lead the way in discovering the best form of independent government. However, Virginia had already looked at six different drafts for a constitution and they were still not certain about which one they thought was the best. Jefferson rejects all of them and he was one of the foremost constitutionalists in the world. He was really distressed that there were very few scholars of that day prepared to support what he felt needed to be done. And he wrote three constitutional drafts in just five weeks and all but a small section of the third draft was rejected by the Virginia leg legislature. And unfortunately, they retain most of the weaknesses that were existing under the British rule, like slavery, primogeniture, which is the rule under which inherited property went exclusively to the oldest son, 
entailed estates, which made it unlawful for heirs to divide huge feudal estates. And then the official state church was left in power and people were taxed to support the church, whether or not they were actually members of that church, which is definitely not fair. Um, so now we get into the genius of Thomas Jefferson's plan. And as we've seen by 1776, Jefferson's already discovered that the basic formula that was eventually, he's already uh, discovered the basic formula that was eventually incorporated into the United States of the Con United States Constitution. Although, although he might not have realized it at the time, um, he was going to have a, a hard time getting his ideas accepted. And he probably was the best prepared of all the founders to launch this campaign of, of creating our constitution. His educational background was phenomenal. He began studying Latin, Greek, and French at the age of nine. He entered William and Mary at Williamsburg at 18, I think, uh, oh, at 16. And then he graduated at 18. Here's William and Mary. I'm from Northern Virginia and Williamsburg is about three hours away from me. I went to school in Newport News, which is about 45 minutes from Williamsburg and spent many family trips and vacations to Williamsburg. It's a beautiful town. If you ever get a chance to go, or if you ever have been, feel free to um, put some information in the Q and A and we can have some discussion about it afterwards. If you have any recommendations or stories from Williamsburg, but just beautiful architecture and colonial buildings that have been really well preserved. I think it was um, John D. Rockefeller had, um, formed a trust to maintain the the grounds and everything so it's a beautiful school dates back to 1693 here's my kiddos a couple years ago and there's thomas jefferson with his uh pen and paper out and uh so you can see this statue is on uh the duke of gloucester street which is the main street that you can walk up and down through the colonial part of williamsburg so they had <laughs> they had a fun time checking him out um, so anyway, uh, he goes to study with George Wythe after he graduates, and George Wythe was a, a law, the first law professor in America, and, and this is his house here, also in Colonial Williamsburg, and so you can see that he was uh, studying over a five-year period, 12 to 14 hours a day, so you can see why when he was examined for the bar that he knew more than the men who were even giving him the exam. So his educational background was that he had gained proficiency in five languages. He had studied the Roman classics, the Greek classics, European history, the Old and New Testaments. And while studying the history of ancient Israel, Jefferson makes this astonishing discovery where he sees how in Exodus 18, the Israelites had practiced the earliest and most efficient form of representative government. And so as long as they followed this fixed pattern of constitutional principles, they were flourishing. And when they drifted it, disaster would overtake them. And so he referred to these, this pattern as the ancient principles. And so he was surprised to find that the Anglo-Saxons were also aware of these same principles and followed a pattern almost identical with that of the Israelites until the eighth century AD. And he did a thorough study of British history which demonstrated that over a thousand years, the people of England had done more than any other nation to revive human freedom on earth. Think of Braveheart and, and all the tales that you've heard about English history in the past. So Jefferson's years of study really made an impression on a stranger who didn't know who he was. And he said, when he spoke of law, I thought he was a lawyer. When he talked about mechanics, I was sure he was an engineer. When he got into medicine, it was evident that he was a physician. 
And when he discussed theology, I was convinced he must be a clergyman. When he talked of literature, I made up my mind that I had run against a college professor who knew everything. So I just always thought that was a cute quote because it kind of speaks to how intelligent Jefferson was and his vast array of knowledge. He really was this Renaissance man and he also uh, had inventions as well. So we'll talk about that a little bit in a minute too. But he married Martha. Martha was his wife and they were only married for 10 years before she died at a very young age. Um, and he's at Monticello, which I think there's a slide from Monticello as well. Uh, beautiful home. He he was an architect, so he played a, a large role in designing this beautiful home. You can go see it in Charlottesville, Virginia. And um, one of the things about Monticello and also, to be honest, Mount Vernon and Montpelier and some of the other founders' homes, at least here in Virginia, um, when I've gone, they make a big emphasis of slavery, maybe more emphasis on slavery than is necessary. And they really kind of subtract from the founders and their stories because they're so hyper-focused on this slavery issue. And we will talk a little bit more about this during other um, sessions in our course, but I did want to share with you that Al Jackson, oh yes, there's Thomas and, and Martha, and Al Jackson, who is Julene Jackson's husband, and he works for the um, Thomas Jefferson Center of Constitutional Studies, gave a speech a few years ago, and um, Hannah, who's helping me tonight, will put the link for this speech um, in the in the chat or the comments, wherever, wherever that is tonight. Um, but you should check it out. It's about an hour long, and he really is giving this very enlightening um, talk about slavery and how we really look at it with um, only our modern eyes, which of course know that it was uh, abhorrent, you know, to mankind. But he kind of takes you back to okay, let's think through this from from their point of view and and the historical context instead of presentism and some of the other isms that we use to sort of uh, think about that time. So it was very interesting talk and I'd highly recommend you um, check it out. Also, Thomas Jefferson did the 10 rules, his 10 rules for living. And I thought the, they were really cool. So I have them on the next slide for you as well. And they're just like really neat pieces of advice. One of them is, uh, it's like, if you're really angry, count to 10. If you're really, really angry, count to 100 before you say anything, which is really great advice. Um, yeah, when angry, count 10 before you speak. If very angry, count 100. I love that one. So we were talking about some of his inventions. If you like macaroni and cheese, you can thank Jefferson for developing the machine that actually cut the noodles into macaroni shape. Um, he developed the lie detector test, the coding ciphers that people use for, um, you know, sending codes to each other, pedometer, the, the spherical sundial, and the dumbwaiter, just to name a few. I think he also did a lot of things with um, books and desks and chairs and things because he loved to read. And so he had all these neat desks and, and chairs and contraptions that he would do. But he was just a really um, amazingly talented person and, and very smart person who was um, you know, just such a Renaissance man. 
Um, so this book here next to you is called The Real Thomas Jefferson. And this book, along with some other books, talk about how the story of the scandals of um, him fathering Sally Hemings' children are false. And so the way that that all got started was when he became president, this guy named James Callender wanted to have an appointment in his cabinet or, you know, somewhere in the government and didn't get whatever it was that he wanted. And so he started spreading this rumor around Thomas Jefferson and um, Thomas Jefferson kind of blows it off. Like the people that really know me know that that's not true. And so I'm not going to be wasting my time worrying about it too much. And so he ignores it and it kind of fades from history for quite some time until 1998, uh, November of 1998, when Bill Clinton was going through impeachment trials and uh, the story magically pops back up and they say that they've done these DNA tests that prove that Thomas Jefferson was the father of Sally Hemings' children. And so that goes on for about eight weeks before they come back out and say, oops, well, maybe not. We can't really prove it. Um, so what happened was uh, they used an uncle's DNA to do this testing, first of all. Second of all, they found out that the DNA that they had only could link it to a one of 26 Jefferson males. It couldn't positively prove that it was Thomas Jefferson. And so what the thought is, is that it was probably his younger brother who was sort of a, um, you know, kind of a, uh, a person who was already, um, I, I believe he already had some of his own children from slaves. And he also was known to go and, and spend evenings singing and dancing with the slaves. Um, and he, uh, his name was Randolph. And so he's named after Randolph, which is a branch of, of the Jefferson's family, their relatives. And so the, chil the child uh, that was in question actually has a Randolph family name as well. Um, so there was a lot of <laughs> a lot of missing pieces there to try to pin it directly on Thomas Jefferson. But the thing that really, um, you know, was interesting was the timing of it all and how it came out during a, a, a current president's indiscretion and how that was probably used to sort of validate it and say, well, here's what our presidents do. They have indiscretions. And so it, it was just really interesting, but I highly recommend you check out um, Wall Builders has some more information on this. There's a book called The Jefferson Lies and um, we'll link it for you at some point. I, I didn't give Hannah the heads up on that one. I'm sorry, Hannah. But um, that's a great one to to learn a little bit more about the true Jefferson. So if you hear people, you know, spreading that, I would just push back on them and challenge them and say, hey, wait a minute, let's not, you know, defraud or deframe our famers, our founders. They are wonderful men. And the reason why this is happening is because if people can sort of chop off the the greatness of these men, if they can cut them down, if they can destroy, they can't take their lives, they can't take their money anymore, but they can still destroy the sacred honor. And so when they wait, they take these men down and they make them seem like, like these perverts and hypocrites and evil men, then it's like, well, why should we listen to them? What do they really know anyway? Nothing that they did was so great. Um, you know, why should we listen to them? And so it really kind of tries to detract from everything that, that they did. And especially when it's lies, we cannot live in lies. We have to live in truth. And so I encourage you to study this more and push back on it when you hear it, because it has become such a widely accepted 
fact when it's really you know still very much in question at the very best um but anyway i just wanted to share that with you because if you felt maybe a little bit guilty about liking thomas jefferson or maybe a little bit like oh i like him but well now you don't have to feel that way anymore so uh, i hope that you uh feel better now because i know that i was so wonderfully pleased to hear that that story was not true when i when i was in study so there you go more you know right um, so back to rebellion in the colonies. So Jefferson caught, caught this spirit of independence that rose sharply throughout the colonies and during, uh, during the spring of 1776. And that same year, Thomas Paine, who had arrived in America only two years earlier, publishes this little book, uh, Common Sense. And I picked this up actually the last time I was out Mount Vernon for $6.99 on sale. So I haven't actually read it yet, but George Washington said that this little book did... Uh, worked a powerful change in the minds of many a man, and it actually sold 120,000 copies, which is quite a bit in a short amount of time, but that's good circulation for, for books in those days. Um, so then uh, other things happen where Washington is liberating Boston, Rhode Island is declaring independence all by herself, um, Congress is now authorizing each colony to set up its own government, and then in May of 1776, Jefferson arrives in Philadelphia as a delegate to Congress, but his heart was still in Virginia where the House of Burgesses was trying to decide what kind of constitution a free people should have. And so Jefferson almost missed writing the Declaration of Independence by requesting permission to return to Virginia, but his request was denied. Thank goodness, right? Because we need him to write the Declaration of Independence. And so, um, uh, a few more uh, items happen, and then a special committee was appointed to write the formal Declaration of Independence. Now, 1776 was a really difficult year for Thomas Jefferson, especially because he had just had a daughter die. His wife, Martha, was extremely ill. She ends up dying in 1782 at the age of 33. Um, he also had his mother die in March of that year. And then sorrow and worry over the state of the country just gave him severe migraine headaches, which lasted for five weeks. But nevertheless, even in deep disappointment, he leaves the legislature in Virginia, rides to Philadelphia, and goes to uh, meet with the committee. And he has this funny little conversation with John Adams where they're arguing over like who's going to actually pin the Declaration of Independence. And it's really cute, so I'll share it with you. So Jefferson says... Uh, Jefferson proposed to me to make the draft. I said, I will not, you should do it. And Jefferson says, oh no, why will you not? You ought to do it. And Adam says, I will not. And Jefferson says, why? And Adam says, reasons enough. And Jefferson says, what can be your reasons? And Adam says, reason first, you are a Virginian and a Virginian ought to appear at the head of this business. Reason second, I am obnoxious, suspected and unpopular. You are very much otherwise. Reason third, you can write 10 times better than I can. And Jefferson says, well, if you are decided, I will do as well as I can. And I think that is so sweet and so cute and really just goes to show that when we're all working together for this cause of liberty and freedom, we cannot let our egos get in the way because they did not either. And we all have to work with our best talents and best gifts. And if somebody else is better, let them go do it and more power to them and God be be with you, right? So just a nice reminder to us as we also work in our day for freedom too. 
So for 17 days, Jefferson is working on this draft and he's spending all of his time on the first two paragraphs. But the major portion of the de declaration is actually taken up, if you recall, with a large series of charges against King George, all of their grievances. And nearly all of these were copied from the Virginia constitution. So why, why did it take him you know, 17 days? Well, his anxiety seemed to have been to get into the Declaration of Independence, the most basic elements of those ancient principles that he mentioned in his proposed drafts of the Virginia State Constitution. So he's really, you know, struggling and, and really spending time working through trying to get this right. On July 4th, 1776, Congress adopted the Declaration of Independence after making 60 changes, but not deleting a single one of Jefferson's ancient principles. So therefore, we know that God truly was in the hand of this because they were keeping those ancient principles that Jefferson knew were going to be so key in making a successful uh, a doc document. So a copy was immediately sent for printing. An official copy was engrossed, and the delegates began signing the engrossed copy on August 2nd. This is the copy that is on display in the archives building of Washington, D.C., and the original copy that was sent to King George has been lost, although you recall that John Hancock wrote his name quite big so that King George wouldn't need his, his spectacles. Um, and the declaration was published on the Pennsylvania Evening Post on July 6th, and the first public reading uh, was done by the Committee of Correspondence in Philadelphia on July 8th, and of course, to great celebration. Um, Jefferson, of course, was not originally identified as the author because, you know, fear of retaliation and everything, but truly every single one of those men was signing the document with their blood. And I'm getting chills thinking about it, but they had mutually pledged to each other their lives, fortunes, and their sacred honor. And they knew that they were risking it all for freedom and how inspiring is that and how wonderful to be reminded of the sacrifice that they made on behalf of all of us today. Had they lost the Revolutionary War, they would no doubt have been tried and convicted of high treason. The penalty for high treason was to be hanged from the gallows until unconscious, then cut down, revived, then disemboweled and beheaded and cut into quarters and each cutter quarter boiled in oil and then the residue would be spread over the countryside so that the last resting place of the offender would be forever unnamed, unhonored, and unknown. So the risk to these men was great, but they moved forward because they knew what they were doing was right. Jefferson reveals the source of his ancient principles. So after writing the Declaration of Independence, he's appointed to a special committee with Benjamin Franklin and John Adams to prepare an official seal for the United States. Both Jefferson and Franklin suggested that one side should portray Moses leading ancient Israel, since the Israelites had the historical distinction of being the most ancient people to practice the principles of representative government. And John Adams felt that since Jefferson had discovered that the Anglo-Saxons practiced almost identical principles, that they should also be re represented on the other side of the seal. And so Jefferson proposes, the children of Israel in the wilderness, led by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night and on the other side Heingeist and Horst of the Saxon chiefs if you remember from last week we talked about them from whom we claim the honor of being descended and whose political 
principles and form of government we have assumed. And so uh, I believe this is the slide here with the, um, this is the United States Committee first draft. So you can see it's very detailed, very um, sort of a lot, <laughs> a lot of very small and um, tiny uh, details in those, in those uh, versions there. Um, later, they end up settling. Uh, I think you can show the next one now, Hannah. Uh, they end up settling on this, which is the out of many one, e pluribus unum, and he hath favored our undertaking, which is the annuit coptis, and then novus ordu seclorum is new order of ages. And so Congress finally adopts this more simple seal with the American Eagle and the unfinished pyramid. Um, and it's, uh, let's see, at the bottom of the pyramid were the inscribed Roman numerals for 1776 and then the all-seeing eye of the creator at the top. And so do we have any more slides there, Hannah? Is there one more? Okay, yes. So this is the conclusion of our lesson for today. Um, I'm just wanting to thank you all so much for joining us today. Um, I also want to remind you of your homework. If you didn't get a chance to get the books yet, please do pick up your copy of the workbooks. They are online at our Moms for America website, and you can also go back through and fill in the blanks. The answer key is in the back of the book, and then you can read forward to next week and study with me this week as I prepare for next week, um, where we'll, we will be talking about the war that set them free, and we'll be talking about George Washington, our favorite. We love him so much. I have this picture up here in my house and I have a very large bust that my husband got for me from uh, Mount Vernon up above me and I'll bring him down sometime, um, maybe closer to his birthday. But I also wanted to remind you that his birthday is coming up in February, uh, just a few weeks from now. And one thing that my family likes to do to celebrate is to make a, an early American dinner. And so I'll make a cherry pie and then I'll go to the Mount Vernon website and they have a lot of early American recipes listed. And so you can go and check those out and, and pull a couple of things to try. Um, but it's, it's such a fun way to really get your kids involved and to enjoy the holiday and to know more about George Washington. And so I'll also get, uh, I picked this up the last time I was out Mount Vernon too. It's just like a little coloring book, but it has like all the historical pictures and things. So I'll maybe make some copies of the, these pages and put them at the table so the kids can color and we'll, you know, tell some stories and maybe some quotes about George Washington and, who knows? We'll pray and we'll ask God to send us some more George Washingtons and maybe do a pledge. We might sing and maybe I'll cry too. I don't know. Um, but it's just such a fun way to make dinner a little more special and really at the same time sort of instill that patriotism to your children and, and to uh, remind them why we have a President's Day holiday in the first place and who George Washington was. Um, so it's a great opportunity that you don't want to miss. So I'm telling you now, so you have a couple of weeks to plan and prepare if you do want to do that. Um, and then uh, next uh, next week, we will be on the war that set them free, which will be session three. So that is, um, it's going to be great. So please don't miss that. I love talking about Washington. It's going to be a wonderful and inspiring evening. 
Thank you all again so much for joining us tonight. And I also did want to show you real quick. I had on tonight my my appeal uh, appeal to heaven shirt. This is from one of the very first flags that was used in some of the battles of the revolution. So I thought it would only be fitting to throw that on for this evening. But I picked this up at Kirk Cameron's website. Um, if you're familiar with his um, American Campfire Revival, and this is one of his t-shirts, it's very affordable and it's also very comfortable. So I highly recommend it. But um, anyway, that does it for me tonight. And